Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Hi, everybody, and good afternoon. Welcome to this episode of WADA ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the National ADA Network, I want to welcome you to the 44th episode of ADA Live. My name is Barry Whaley, and I'm the project director here at the Southeast ADA Center. The topic for our show today is Why Your Advocacy Matters, what's happening at the state and federal level in disability employment policy. And as a reminder, ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your question about disability employment policy at any time at adalive.org. Well, it's my pleasure now to introduce today's speaker, my friend and colleague, Allison Wall. Allison is the Executive Director of APSI, the Association for People Supporting Employment First, APSI is a national membership organization that promotes the full inclusion of people with disabilities in the workplace and community. In 2009, when she learned that her youngest son, Julian, had Down syndrome, Allison knew it was time to leave her busy life as a management consultant for the even busier world of disability advocacy. Allison holds an MBA from the College of William and Mary, and her undergraduate degree is from the State University of New York at Binghamton. In addition to Julian, she's the mom of two other boys, Ben and Jake. So, Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me here today, Barry. Great. I'm glad you're here. Today we're talking about disability employment policy at the state and local level. So, Allison, I'd like to start by asking you, what have been some of the national trends in disability employment over the past five or ten years? Well, that's a, a, a great question because even though APSI um, and other groups have been involved in, in promoting employment for 30 years, um, really we just started seeing some substantial movement just over the last uh, six years or so. Um, there's, been a, there's been some national shifts which um, – you know, some states have uh, are more more further along this path than others, but I think the primary focus has been um, an emphasis on systems change. We're really seeing shifts away from congregate settings um, where people with disabilities are just with people with disabilities and their staff that support them, and they're moving more. The the system is focusing more to supporting people in community settings. We're also seeing a shift away from subminimum wage work. And it's interesting, when I got into this work in 2011, there was a proposal and a big bill to uh, get a minute subminimum wage. And the outcry was so fierce that they pulled the language from the bill. And now it's just a question of, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So we, we've really seen an enormous shift over the last several years. Another focus um, has been on people with disabilities making decisions for themselves, um, both on their own and with support from trusted people in their lives, and being part of the economic mainstream by opening bank accounts, paying taxes, and building assets. 
So obviously, you know, employment is a huge part of that because if people don't have uh, disposable income, if they don't have income at all, if they're totally reliant on benefits, they're really not in a position to make their own decisions and to think about being on a path to economic self-sufficiency. Another trend um, that's emphasized um, shift over the last several years has been a greater acceptance of people with disabilities as individuals. I think for a long time they were seen as either a stereotype of their disability or just sort of a monolith. And now we're really understanding by having more people with disabilities and they're first starting in schools, um, in their communities, in, in employment, that they're actually individuals and are very different um, and not just you know, the stereotype that maybe people had had about them in the past. Because a lot of people don't come in contact with people with disabilities unless they have someone in their lives who has a disability. Finally, um, another trend has been, and, and this is really what's driving employment for people with disabilities now, is the recognition that, um, that people hiring people with disabilities and having them part of a workforce is actually a competitive advantage for businesses. Um, in the past, I think a lot of times they were seen as just you know, people that were to be pitied or that charity would take care of. And that's really changed an enormous amount. People with disabilities, now businesses are understanding that they have their own skills and abilities and add a tremendous amount and tremendous value to a business's bottom line and also to its culture. But, you know, these are these are encouraging and, and, and welcome trends, certainly things that, that we've been working for the last 35 years mm-hmm. or more. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a very exciting time to be in this field. I wonder, you know, putting on the crystal ball, uh, do, do you see these trends to continue, Allison? Well, I like to say, you know, you really can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's kind of a crude way of looking at a lot of different things. But people with disabilities are not going to then accept to where they were you know, being institutionalized, being in congregate settings. Um, so I definitely expect the, the trends to continue. And as we recognize the value of diverse groups in our communities and in our workplaces, more and more people realize that workers with disabilities are actually an, an untapped resource. Historically, people with disabilities have been consigned to poverty and to life on the margin. But it it's such a waste of human potential. Um, and, you know, aside from just the social aspect of looking at this, we have demographic trends that are making it impossible to ignore the contributions and potential of workers with disabilities. As baby boomers age out of the workforce, we are looking at, um, by 2020, 15% of jobs going unfilled. That means that we'll have 15% more jobs than there are workers available. 10,000 people per day turn 65. And um, as we continue to shift more towards the service economy, economy, that means that businesses are going to have to find people um, to keep their businesses going. And they realize more and more that people with disabilities are really an untapped resource with enormous potential. Uh, that, that 15%, I mean, that's, that's kind of a staggering percentage yeah. when, you, when you think about it. So, so I'm wondering... What what concerns you have for the future of disability employment policy? There are a number of concerns that I have. 
um, for the future of disability employment policy. Um, and a number of them are urgent and they're happening right now. The timely recording because right now, this Congress has been working really hard to slash Medicaid. I expect that to continue. And Medicaid is the vehicle where many people with disabilities are supported in employment, are supported in uh, living uh, independent lives. And um, the Affordable Care Act has actually gone a, gone a long way towards supporting independence for people with disabilities by expanding Medicaid um, and also by making it easier to obtain services um, for people in the community. The American Health Care Act, which is, is a proposal to repeal the Affordable Care Act, actually has in it $880 billion in cuts to Medicaid. <clears throat> this would have a devastating impact on the disability service system, which in large part is funded through Medicaid. You know, it's a topic that doesn't get a lot of media attention because um, politically services to people uh, with disabilities are just not a, 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 a headline grabber. But in addition to those proposed cuts, if the uh, American Health Care Act is, is enacted, it would turn what has always been an entitlement system into what is called per capita caps. And what that means is that each person who receives Medicaid would only get a set amount. And increases in those amounts would not keep pace with inflation. So that means states would have to make really tough decisions about whether, um, about either to make it more difficult to qualify for services or they would have to cap the number of people who receive services, who receive services, or both. So, in, in short, the the pot is shrinking, and you have the same amount of people to serve. And what we've come to know as home and community-based services, HCBS services, are optional for states. I think a lot of people don't know that. So, with less money from the federal government to serve the same amount of people we would expect that states would take much of the money they have historically used for community-based services like employment and funnel those funds towards mandatory Medicaid services that are mandated by law, by CMS. So that's a really big concern. <clears throat> and I think looking into the future, we need to think about different ways to fund supported employment or employment supports for people with disabilities because Medicaid is a target um, for cuts has been for a long time, will continue to be as the number of people on Medicaid continues to grow. Another area that I think that's been that I'm really concerned about is that in as we've seen uh, more and more people um, receiving community services and working in their communities, there's been a trend towards, um, towards additional segregation uh, for congregate settings, um, they're called, you know, um, farmsteads or um, totally segregated settings that really feel a, to a lot of people, and certainly to parents like me, um, like reinstitutionalization. And we, we fought so hard. Uh, people before me certainly um, fought to get to close down institutions and to allow um, their adult children with disabilities to live in their communities. Um, but this pro-segregation movement is well-funded, and it's a very vocal segment of the disability world. Um, they want segregated, segregated services and settings, and they also are working really hard to maintain the status quo on the argument that shelter workshops are jobs, when in fact most of the time they're not. I realized I hadn't talked about the term social, shelter workshops. They, they are 
um, congregate services where people with disabilities go, um, usually for the day, and they receive contracts from the outside to do things like packing, uh, shredding, and they are um, they're paid often, people with disabilities are often paid less than minimum wage. So sometimes there's work, sometimes they're not but they're not evaluated on what their skills and abilities would be and what the best job fit would be. This has been, they've put up a very big fight. Um, and, you know, actually we just think these are not actually jobs. Most of the time they're not. That's not always the case, but in most cases um, they're not jobs. And we know that, um, uh, that social and medical outcomes for people who are isolated from the broader society are not as good as those who are supported to live in their communities and work in their communities, just like everybody else. Um, as a parent, I want my son to be supported in his community and to be able to use his skills and abilities and to work in a job of his choosing like anybody else. I guess the third point that I would make that is really a threat, <clears throat> is also an immediate threat, and it certainly has a direct impact uh, on, the, on the ADA. The Department of Justice in, in the last administration worked hard to enforce the 1999 Supreme Court Olmstead decision, which said that people with disabilities must be served in the most integrated setting. And it's based on Title II of the ADA, which is known as the non-discrimination clause. So without a strong civil rights enforcement section, it's very difficult to enforce ADA regulations it, with states in this last administration had done a, gone a, long way, a long way towards forcing states through legal measures to uh, either go to con, into consent decrees or have settlements which forced the states to serve people in community settings. And there were, you know, a lot of different instances of this. But it was effective sort of as a as a stick, if you look at funding as a carrot and DOJ as a stick. But without enforcement, laws and regulations don't mean a lot. Um, so that's a, that's a really big concern. And the other concern is that there are, we're seeing some bills introduced in Congress which actually will weaken the ADA. Um, one is called the ADA Education Act. There's another bill that would um, make it very difficult for groups to bring class action suits. And these have historically been the vehicles by which people have, have forced states to provide uh, employment and serve people with disabilities in their communities. So those are really some things to keep an eye on. Thank you for sharing those concerns. They, they, they do certainly present some challenges for us moving forward, Allison. ADA Lit Live listening audience, as a reminder, if you do have a question about disability employment policy, please submit it at any time at our online forum. That's adalive.org. Now let's have a word from our sponsor. Association of People Supporting Employment Events Employment and Self-Sufficiency for All People with Disabilities. Its vision is that people with all types of disabilities are employed, pursuing careers and building assets just like people without disabilities to change expectations and achieve outcomes, EPSI champions the employment principle that employment and careers be, be expected and preferred outcomes of all publicly funded services for those with disabilities. EPSI works to change policies, practices, and funding to advance 
employment, career, development, and economic advancement for all. For more information about EPSI, please go to www.epsi.org. Welcome back to our show. Again, we're talking with Allison Wall, the Executive Director of APSI, about what's happening at the state and federal level on disability employment policy. Allison, I'm wondering, are there specific laws or regulations um, that have helped to push disability employment into the public eye? Absolutely. Um, there are really two mechanisms for um, funding disability service providers that um, enable those providers to um, find, uh, to explore job opportunities for finding the right fit for people with disabilities in a job, for building relationships with employers, and then for actually providing job supports for employers. And those two systems are the vocational rehab system and the developmental disability system. <clears throat> the vocational rehab system is funded by the Re Rehab Services Administration in the bill that authorizes that funding is the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. Um, it was originally called the Workforce Investment Act, and it was originally um, enacted in 1973. But every 10 years, uh, there's supposed to be a reauthorization. There was one in 2013. This, this bill really went a long way towards supporting youth who are transitioning into the um, adult system of services and support. And it really, it was kind of revolutionary um, in, a, in a quiet way for those who actually follow this, um, this kind of legislation closely. But what it did was it really turned some historical assumptions on its head, on their heads. And, in typical, and the way that our laws were written, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s and the early 70s, there were institutions only. And so um, there weren't opportunities for people with disabilities. And so... What, what the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act did was assume that people with disabilities who are being served by the vocational rehab system would work. In the past, it was assumed that they wouldn't. It was assumed that they would just go into, um, <clears throat> into institutions and not do much. Um, but this bill assumes that people will work, and it gives them the opportunity to find employment, to try employment, to be supported in employment, um, before they are referred out to a more restrictive option. So everyone who comes into employment through the public system of supports and services comes in through the voc rehab system, and WIOA really um, was an enormous um, boost, and it's been a challenge to implement because it requires a lot of different thinking. Um, it requires agencies to um, have different processes, but it insists, um, that from a public perspective, people with disabilities are supported to to find employment um, before they decide that, that their employment is not the right path for them. One, and then along those lines, uh, I talked about a little bit earlier, home and community-based services, these are ability agencies and, and, and individuals who access them directly. And they are Medicaid-funded services that um, do fund employment. And there was a, a rule uh, in 2014 called HCBS Settings Rule, which is still in its planning phase for all states who are having – each state had to come up with a plan where um, they would talk about how they would come into compliance with the rule by 2019. What this regulation basically says is that 
people with disabilities must be served um, in a setting uh, where they are not isolated from the broader community. Again, this has been a, a big change for state and for service providers. But what it does is, and it's the same with WIOA, the regulations for both of these laws really focus on serving individuals in the community, enabling them and supporting them to work, and providing different incentives for agencies to support people with disabilities in work. One other um, piece of legislation that uh, really helped to push disability into the public eye and, and, and the system of supports and services for people with disabilities that keeps them in poverty um, is the ABLE Act. It was the Achieving a Better Life Experience Act, which passed in um, 2014. And the ABLE Act allows people with disabilities to save tax-free uh, up to $100,000 a year. So if you were someone who was on SSI in the past, there are $2,000 asset limitations, and there are also state-by-state state different income limitations, this allows people to save money. It, it kind of gets around the asset limitations, which haven't been raised since the late 1980s. So it's very difficult for anyone, you know, to try and live on what people lived on 30 years ago. Um, and so the ABLE Act really helps people and families plan and um, save and in, in, in that way, it is an incentive um, to work because people don't have to artificially deflate their wages or hours. That's, that's great information. Thank you, Allison. I want to turn to APSI, the organization that you hey. represent. And I want to just mention that I'm, I'm a proud member of APSI myself. And APSI is an, an organization that promotes the full inclusion of people with disabilities in the workforce and the community. Mm -hmm. And, and the marquee term in the name mm -hmm. of the organization is Employment First. Mm -hmm. and, and what I'd like for you to do is, is to kind of explain what Employment First means and why it's important for, for disability employment policy. Sure. So Employment First just means that employment, we believe that employment should be the primary service outcome for any individual with a disability who comes into the, the long-term services and support system in this country. So what does that mean? When, when someone ages out of um, graduation from high school or ages out of the secondary education, parents often and families often face what, what is called you know, a cliff, a services cliff. So suddenly they find themselves in the adult system. And there aren't a lot of great choices, or there historically haven't been a lot of great choices about what comes next. And Employment First just says that when, when people are considering their next steps, from a perspective of public policy, we ought to be encouraging and supporting uh, people with disabilities to work uh, real jobs with real wages, just like anybody else. Um, we, we do get a lot of people outside of AFSI who say, that a lot of people can't work or for whatever reason don't want to work. And the answer is employment first doesn't mean employment only. But it does mean that um, when we're using uh, public dollars that go into a system to support people with disabilities, we ought to be, we ought to be focusing on employment as a primary option. 
And then if people try employment and they're supported appropriately in employment and they fail, then they should be able to try again and fail as we all do and try again until it's determined that that person, you know, this really isn't the right direction for them. It's really taken, really taken off um, across the country. There are, there are 32 states who have some sort of policy action, whether that's the executive order, agency directive, or legislation um, around employment first. So it is, it is a, a very popular phrase and certainly has been adopted by, in many places. What we need to work on is shifting that funding that often goes to segregate people with disabilities over to uh, better, to additional funding away from those services into supporting people to work and, and live in their communities. So, so 32 states <laughs> have an employment first directive of, of, mm-hmm. of some way. So obviously there is still uh, some work to be done. What, what can we do, Allison, to, to influence state or national policies around employment first? Well, I think the best thing that um, people can do is to get to know um, the legislators in their state, get to know, um, you know, when they when invite them to come and see somebody uh, with a disability who is actually working in a real job and, and get them to see firsthand how this can work. Because a lot of times they just don't know this is, this is a topic that is not, uh, it, it's not really front and center for a lot of people. If people get to know their members of Congress, uh, the members of Congress come into their district all the time, and you can always schedule, um, re- reach out to that office and schedule a visit um, to, to come see how supported employment works in your community and in their district. Some states do what they call take your legislator to work day, they would invite either their state or federal level representatives to come and shadow people with disabilities and see what their days are like, see what see what's possible in employment. Uh, again, a lot of people just don't know. Other things people can do are get to know their governors, uh, not or maybe not, you know, whether they meet a governor or that. They have big staff, and their job is to get to know constituents and understand constituent um, issues. And you know, I think a lot of people are intimidated by um, legislators or, uh, you know, people at the governor level, and we forget that they are public servants and that it's our job to advocate um, as citizens. And, again, this is a topic that a lot of people don't know very much about. APSI can certainly help you if you want to schedule a meeting with a policymaker. Um, we have lots of, you know, uh, talking points and um, leave behind, that's what we call, uh, you know, information packets that people can can leave if they want to do some more education past the meeting. But I think the most important thing that people can do is to tell their story. If you are someone with an, if you are an individual with a disability, talk about your job and and the supports that you receive, why that's important to you, to your family, to your community, and what other people have learned from you. If you're a disability service provider. You know, you can educate people in uh, in, in policymaking roles and in political roles about, wh- again, what you're doing at your agency, how that is impacting your community. And certainly for families, having someone who, you know, is empowered, who is enabled to work 
and who is fulfilled and living a life that they want to live obviously has a huge impact on a family and on a community. So if you want to do that through social media, through emails, send pictures, send cards, office is collective. It's their job to collect it. And I think sometimes we feel that our legislators are out of out of our reach or that they don't care about us. And that is, um, it is their job to understand their constituents and what's going on in their communities. So we're seeing a lot of people who have never been involved before get involved. And I think there's nothing more important than telling your story um, and doing your advocacy on your local level because it does matter. And that's what gets that's what gets built past ultimately. Clearly, it's a it's a grassroots effort. In 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 regard to that, Allison, what what legislative or regulatory milestones do you consider the result of of grassroots advocacy? Well, I think two of them stick out as particularly influenced by grassroots advocacy. And the first would, of course, be the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, in 1990. At that time. People who had a very difficult time accessing the world around them came out and from all over the country in a very organized, uh, grassroots way and said, hey, it's our right to be able to access public places, to be able to ride the bus, to be able to get around town in our wheelchairs. Businesses should comply and open up the world to be more accessible to people with disabilities. So I would say that would be the first. And one more recent would be the ABLE Act, which was passed in 2014. And the ABLE Act was passed by a lot of grassroots groups, often um, mostly family groups, who really had people come out from all over the country, meet with their legislators, and tell their stories and why it was that they were not able to save um, with for their children with disabilities and people with disabilities saying, hey, I rely on public funds to be to support myself, but I can't ever dig myself out of poverty. And so as, as a result, when that bill passed, there were 417 out of 435 members of Congress who voted for that bill. It was important. It made legislators feel like they came together to accomplish something that was really important and to support people uh, with disabilities, which is a really important function of government. The ABLE Act was the first grassroots effort that I was a part of. When my son was born in 2009, uh, my dad, who's a tax attorney, told me that I had to write my son out of our will because he couldn't inherit assets. And that was two months after he was born, and I realized that was just deeply wrong that we would have to disinherit a child who had so many challenges and was so young. And so I actually got involved um, with a, a, a National Down Syndrome Society, what they call a Hill Day. They go to Capitol Hill and they organize your meetings and you go and talk to them about various um, legislative efforts. And one of them was the Cable Act. We went and met with our congressman, who is now a senator in our state in Maryland, and who is, is, is now a huge champion of disability rights issues. So, so the message here is that our voices matter. Your voices matter, your advocacy matters, your story matters. You know, with social media, we really have bigger megaphones to, to amplify those stories. Looking ahead, Allison, what are the challenges for APSI chapters and, and especially the work that APSI is doing on the national level? Well, our chapters are all volunteers, including our board, you know, chapter leadership. And so we always want to be bringing new people into APSI and having new members join and also having those members 
become board members and leaders within APSI, both on their state boards and their national boards. We don't ever want people to burn out. We want to make sure that there's always people involved, and you can be involved in large ways or small by becoming part of your state chapter. You can always get involved just by joining and being a member of APSI in your state. And if you want to try out APSI and see what we're all about, I invite you to register for the 2017 APSI conference in Portland, Oregon on June 20th, 21st, and 22nd. It is the only conference of its kind where a thousand people will come together, experts and like-minded people from all over the country to focus on employment, full employment for people with disabilities. So I hope you will join us in Portland in June. What are the one or two most important things? What are the two takeaways you want our listeners to remember about advocacy at the state and federal level? So I think the two most important things that I'd like people to remember, there are a lot of different ways to be an advocate. You know, you don't have to have a degree or dress in a certain way or speak in a certain way to have your voice heard, public servants work for you and you as constituents, it's our job to advocate um, with uh, people with disabilities, with our families, with our communities, that I, I would like people to not be afraid to get to know their legislators, keep in touch with them and build relationships with them because, as I said earlier, your voices matter, your stories matter, and ultimately, I mean, this is such a cliche, but all politics is local. And um, members of Congress run every two years in the House, every six years in the Senate. There are so many different ways to organize now, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, whether, um, you know, you, you prefer writing letters or sending letters or sending emails or having face-to-face meetings. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And I would say that the second thing is that for a long time, uh, people with disabilities were closed off from our society put away where no one had to um, interact with them. And that, that's really, that's, it's changed so drastically so much so that, you know, having a child who's seven, uh, we have a, he has a very, very bright future. That is important. A lot of people don't know they're not in touch with these issues. They don't understand them. They're complex. But it's really important to be advocating and to be educating. And you don't have to be, you know, a political person or, you know, be a Republican or a Democrat. It, it, these are human issues. These are bipartisan issues. It's important that the people who are making policy and what policy really means is, you know, who makes the rule and where the funding gets spent. It's really important to spend those public funds supporting people with disabilities to use their skills and abilities to um, live full lives just like anybody else in their community. So uh, don't be afraid to tell your story. I'd like to thank Allison Wall, the Executive Director of APSI, the Association of People Supporting Employment First, for being our guest today. This show and all previous WADA episodes are archived at our website, adalive.org. I also want to thank you, our ADA Live listening audience. The Southeast ADA Center is grateful for your support and participation in this series of WADA ADA Live broadcasts. And remember, you can submit your questions about any of our ADA Live topics by going to adalive.org. I hope you'll join us again on Wednesday, June 7th, 
when our guest will be Dr. Meg Griegel of Think College, and our topic will be Think College, Inclusive Higher Education for People with Intellectual Disabilities. Again, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, please contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Once again, that's 1-800-949-4232. All calls are free and confidential. Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call 1-800-949-4232 for answers to your ADA questions.